This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today we're going to talk about child abuse, football, and electing judges. We welcome our special group to discuss current legal topics, Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, and attorney and faculty member Wendy Patrick. Our guests today are here speaking as individual educators, not as representatives of their offices. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Law Review. There have been a, a number of scandals involving the abuse of children. The Penn State uh, situation, the, more recently the Boy Scout uh, revelations and others. It's clear that the people who've been abusing children are, are committing serious crimes. But how about those who know about the abuse? Um, have they been acting illegally? Wendy, what do you think? Yeah, that's one of the questions on everybody's mind is who knew what, when, and why didn't they say anything? In fact, you may recall one of the witnesses in the Sandusky case uh, mentioned going into a locker room and seeing Sandusky and a boy in a compromising position, not saying anything because, quote, Sandusky was a saint. And he's not the only witness that provided that kind of testimony. Uh, unfortunately, everybody. Well, now, so let the person. Let's take the person walking by. Yeah. And let's pretend it's in California because every state has different rules. Did that person have to report? It would depend on who that person was, and that that is is the most the single most misunderstood aspect of mandatory reporting law. All states have different mandatory reporters. In California, your your mandatory reporters are found under Penal Code Section 11165.7. Fortunately, most of us carry that around, so yeah. we can look that up. What, what's it say? What it says is it gives a list, and you know, it's it's a good thing that we all have iPhones because if we did need to look it up, long gone are the days you'd need to figure out. Well, who knows somebody in the DA's office? Where can we find this penal code? You can look it up on Google nowadays. It gives a long list, and it's it's so long. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights. Um, some of these highlights might be uh, obvious, some not so obvious. I say that because the list includes sometimes volunteers being included in the category, sometimes of, volunteers. Of those who must report. Yes. Um, obviously teachers, teachers' aides, administrators, classified employees of any public or private school. Administrators are employees of day camps, youth centers, youth recreation programs. I'm jumping around a little bit just to give you kind of a flavor of the categories that are included. Employees of school district police or security departments. Psychological assistance. I mean, I'm deliberately choosing some categories that maybe are not such common knowledge. Listen to this one. Many of us remember some, some cases on point for this. Commercial film and photographic print processors are on that and, list. And that's because they would, when they're producing film, might see sexual abuse? They kids. might see something that is, is, is either blatant sexual abuse or something that indicates potential sexual abuse. And now I've moved into the gray area of, of fear. This area strikes fear into the hearts of people that worry whether or not they've actually witnessed something that would that they need to report. So we're talking about the people who are required by the law to report. Yes. I suppose other people are permitted to report even if though they're not required to report. Absolutely. So when in doubt, they could report. Now, how, who, who do they report to? It depends on who it is. Um, the And I gave the, the example of somebody developing film goes straight to law enforcement. You may actually have people that you have to report to, uh, some sort of a public agency, depends on what category of mandatory reporter you are. 
One of the things that um, complicates this a little bit is people are afraid of false reporting because you get immunity for reporting, but if you are falsely reporting and you should have known it's false, there's potential liability. That, a lot of people think, is why some people are afraid to report. They're, they're so afraid they don't have enough information. They don't have the right kind of information. They don't want to get themselves in trouble for reporting something in reckless disregard of the truth. All of those terms are defined in these penal code sections. So the very first thing... You, I mean, you have to be sort of acting in bad faith in, or, in sort of ordinary terms, in bad faith for that stuff, to that potential for liability to kick in. Or in reckless disregard of the well, truth. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's Which that's may true. still, that, as that's, you're... That's true. That's it may true. still, yeah. as you're saying, fall under the, it's, it's either bad faith or it's reckless. The most important thing someone can do is familiarize themselves with exactly the way these statutes are worded so they don't step into a scenario where they have accidentally not reported something they should have or conversely, not not looked at the facts, not done any investigation, not been sure. Wendy, um, this is John Fisk here. How are you? Hi. Good. good. Hi. And um, I am curious to know whether or not there is any sort of confidentiality for the reporter. If the reporter is nervous or unclear or they aren't as familiar with all of the laws as you are and as we are, of course. Um, what what kind of confidentiality or protection does a uh, mandatory reporter have? That's a great question, John. And again, as with all these laws, they vary state to state. One of the ones that is discussed in Penal Code Section 11166 is the clergy penitent privilege. And how, you know, we, we talk about this one all the time because of, um, sadly, because of some of the, the cases that we, we all know about but also because it is explicitly there in the law. It says the clergy, the clergy penitent privilege is permitted for penitential communications. Now, this does not modify, this is important, it doesn't modify or limit a clergy member's duty to report, to report known or suspected child abuse or neglect when the clergy member is acting in some other capacity. So, well, here privilege normally means one thing. Here it kind of means another. You don't have to report. I, I take it. So if a penitent came to a, a priest and said, I've been abusing, I have sinned, I've been abusing a child, that would, the, the priest would not have to report the penitent. Is that what that just said? It, it says that that is one of the situations where the privilege is permitted, if it's in that context. Now, there's an enormous body of case law I wish we had time to go into. We don't, but that talks about, you know, can you absolve yourself from liability by making a confession to a priest? You know, it's like anything else in the law. There's an awful lot. I would, if I, Well, that doesn't, no, it, it does, it can't. And that's why I bring that up. Maybe is, with God, but not Right, that's why I bring that up is when you, <laughs> When you talk about this particular privilege, which is very different from attorney-client, marital, therapist, pay, I mean, we can go on and on, um, you would really want to make sure that you're looking at more than simply the wording of, of this statute. You want to be looking at the annotations, what cases are interpreting it, et cetera, just like everything else. But um, that's a great question, John, and that is one of the ones explicitly um, mentioned in here. Uh, Wendy, this is Judge Medell on the line here now. Uh, do the statistics about child abuse, do they accurately report uh, uh, the sex crimes? I, uh, child abuse and child molestation are just severely underreported for a variety of reasons. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that we, we're, so, we're so surprised when some, you know, important person in the community like Jerry Sandusky is. We shouldn't be because child molesters come in all shapes and sizes. There is nothing about prestige, fame, credentials, degrees that makes someone unlikely to commit 
commit a sex offense. A lot of the times they're underreported because the, the perpetrators are known to the victims, sometimes loved by the victims. Sometimes victims are afraid to report because perpetrators are held in such esteem in the community. They're afraid they wouldn't be believed or there'd be retaliation. So statistics cannot possibly accurately report the scope of the problem. Does reporting have any sort of um, consequence on a statute of limitations? So for example, if I'm a, a, a friend or a victim myself, and maybe several years go by, is it still worth it for me to report this? Um, and am I going to be, if I'm an, um, a mandatory reporter, am I gonna be held liable if I report it too late? The, there's different statute of limitations for different crimes. Also remember, you know, worst case scenario, if a statute of limitation for a, for a particular crime has passed, there's lots of other things that law enforcement can do with, with statements, even if they can't directly charge crimes out of them. They could be used to corroborate the same perpetrator committing a crime that's not statute barred or something else. So there's always a good reason to get these things documented. But you raise another really good point, one that is, is grappled with all the time. What do you do when too much time has passed and, and what crimes can still be prosecuted? One last question before we uh, talk about another topic, and that is, are there consequences, legal consequences to not reporting? Um, not reporting, there are, uh, and that's another thing that people need to be familiar with, is mandatory reporters have to report immediately. Some, some talk about within 72 hours, what does immediately mean, but it's, it's spelled out in the statute that they've got to be reported. There can't be a, well, I'm just not going to because I don't, you know, the so-and-so seems to, like a nice guy. So anybody that is a mandatory reporter should have these guidelines on their wall, on their bathroom mirror at home, and yes, Dean Smith in their pocket <laughs> so they can pull them out even if they can't get a phone signal and make sure they're doing the right thing. Today on Law Review, we are talking with Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, Deputy District Attorney Wendy Patrick. We take a significant jump from children who are being abused to grown-ups playing games to professional football. Professional football seems to be raising all sorts of legal issues, John. Uh, we have seen lawsuits from brain injuries and all sorts of other things. But a, a truly strange development, in, in my opinion, has been the, the lawsuits and the complaints over bounties, play, paying players essentially to, it looks to me like, to injure other players. What's that all about? Yeah, that's right, uh, Dean Smith, and we've got so many um, issues, legal issues, surrounding the Bounty Gate scandal that is surrounding the New Orleans Saints that it almost at first glance seems like something out of a uh, law school uh, uh, problem on a test. Um, essentially, what has happened in the New Orleans Saints organization, or has been alleged... And actually, some others are now claiming in other teams. That's right. And, and certainly, I, I should mention, this is not anything new. This is something that several players have, been, uh, have claimed has been going on for a long time. And essentially, uh, what's being alleged are, is that players and coaches are coming together and pooling money in order to reward other players for physically injuring football players while on the football field. On the other team. On the <laughs> other team, yeah, exactly. Hopefully not your own team. That would surely be a scandal. But, um, and this would include being carted off or being knocked out or some sort of permanent injury, um, like breaking someone's leg or arm. And, of course, um, this raises all sorts of interesting legal issues that I would encourage any uh, legal scholar or layperson to investigate because what we have is essentially a game where people are inherently subjecting themselves to danger. Uh, but that danger is sort of controlled by the confines and the rules 
of the game. And so we have players who are now being paid by the organization or managers of the organization or other players in the organization to go beyond what players would normally agree to. When players step on the field, they're agreeing to some risk, some inherent risk. And now the question is, what are these players agreeing to? Uh, and if the players know impliedly in their job that they're stepping on the field and these bounty programs exist, is it really that, that big of a deal anyway? So as the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell, who's a very controversial figure for any football fans, um, as they've alleged, uh, they've suspended and, and issued quite harsh punishments for some of the players and coaches involved in the Bounty Gate scandal. And there is a very long procedural history, and I won't bore everybody with it, but essentially the procedural history uh, is interesting for those interested in collective bargaining agreements because Roger Goodell has played judge, jury, executioner, appellate court, uh, and executioner again after the appellate court. Um, and so now... <laughs> and when he got stopped, he sort of asked his predecessor, uh, Commissioner Tagliabu, to, yeah. to step in. Yeah, and now Mr. Tagliabu, who has apparently represented Roger Goodell in a sort of a sister lawsuit associated with the um, claim, um, now they're trying to recuse Mr. Uh, Tagliabu as, as the, well. There are tons, as you said, just tons of legal issues. But let's start with the one you're talking about, the procedural one, because uh, this is essentially a contract or labor issue. And that is whether the players who were suspended were treated fairly under the contract. Is that a, fa a fair yeah. description of the, the dispute? Yeah, it seems like under the collective bargaining agreement, the uh, NFL Players Association uh, agrees with the NFL in terms of certain types of uh, justice processes. And in these justice processes, certain appellate um, processes are warranted. And what has happened is Roger Goodell has been, it has been determined by a three attorney panel, one attorney and two former federal judges, that Roger Goodell is not supposed to be hearing his own appeals. Um, he, can't, he can't be the courtroom judge, if you will, and then also be the appellate judge. And that's where Roger Goodell is being accused of overstepping his bounds. When, uh, this is Judge Medell piping in again. Uh, uh, you know, the uh, pinnacle of uh, success in a baseball game is hitting a home run as far as you can, uh, can and as hard as you can hitting the ball. The pinnacle in football, having played it, is hitting another man as hard as you possibly <laughs> can. And that's what, you're, that's what the game is designed to do. In fact, when I was in high school, we did have an award every week, Hit of the Week Award. Who hit the guy the hardest? And so I'm kind of fuzzy in terms of where you draw the line with that sort of inherent um, goal of the game and inherent mentality of the game uh, versus where the New Orleans Saints uh, went wrong. Uh, trying to avoid, of course, talking about a specific case, but I'm talking about guidelines in general. Where do you draw the line between uh, between what's inherently required of the game and what the and what what has happened recently with these professional teams? Well, and I don't have an answer to that question, but I can certainly murky the waters even further, Judge, <laughs> uh, because apparently back in 1996, the players' union, um, well, the players' union is now citing an incentive program that was known by the NFL in 1996. The incentive program being a bounty-like program. A bounty-like program. That was actually approved, correct? And, and this, are we talking about the smash for cash program? <laughs> $500 the, I, a hit. Right. And the reason I, I, <laughs> that draws my attention is 
It's called Smash for Cash, but isn't it true that it paid $500 for big plays that may or may not include big hits, or, or do we all kind of know what well, that Well, actually, that's, I was going to ask Judge Medell something very similar to that, because what was, was the award that you were talking about for a great play or for because it was most likely to cause an injury? And is there any difference between those? Gee, Wendy, what was it, what was it called again? <laughs> Smash for Smash Cash. Smash for Cash. <laughs> I think that sort of answers what it was for. <laughs> yeah. um, but but um, no, and then, um, you know, I consider football uh, something that really formulated my theories on life, believe it or not, as silly as it sounds. So I believe in the game very much. And part of it is your ability to overcome your own size limitations then smash a bigger guy knock him down tackle him whatever's required in a hard way as uh, you know a true measure of your success uh, showing that you can overcome any obstacle i mean there are bigger principles involved so um i i guess the distinction that we're making here is 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 a is a an intent uh, b a mindset versus the actual physicality of it it's totally okay to use your body in a way to try to knock a guy down as hard as you possibly can. But if the mens rea, either in your mind or in your coach's mind on these incentive programs, is to physically injure that person in the process, that's the delicto. And that's what's difficult, especially since there are parallel cases mm -hmm. being brought against the NFL right now for brain injury. And in fact, we have some prominent attorneys here in San Diego who, as I understand it, are bringing some of those injuries, and I think I think the gravamen behind those are that uh, the NFL knew or should have known or actually actively hid information about the cause of brain injury on its players. But, but those brain injuries are from normal play, not from the uh, non-normal or, or excessive play, I, that's, I assume. That's right. But it, I think both of them raise the question of what is it the players know or don't know as they're stepping onto the field, and what are they agreeing to? Well, presumably it makes the, 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 the National Football League management more concerned about the real rough and tumble stuff that c can cause injury. So Absolutely. that may play part of the, the, I mean, the public concern and whatnot that yeah. they're responding to. to. Let, let's, let me ask a, a, a related question. So if, if someone playing football, uh, Judge Medell says, right, you expect to get, and you said, you expect to get knocked around uh, a lot. Uh, but if somebody breaks the rules and injures another person, are there legal consequences? Beyond the beyond being disciplined by football. Well, you know that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems like from a civil litigator standpoint, someone would say, in in traditional tort law, they might say, you know, I'd like to sue you because you intentionally tried to break my ankle. Well, you consented to the battery of being knocked around, but not to being clobbered uh, beyond the rules. Maybe that's right. And there have been specific instances in which a player such as Brett Favre or Kurt Warner were singled out as being targets. And I could imagine that um, if they were in California during one of these playoff games and a team got together and said, we're going to break Brett Favre's ankle, I would imagine that there would be some tort liability that would uh, exist, or at least a great case could be made for it, and possibly a novel case could be made for it outside of a labor union agreement or even some sort of penalty. Perhaps made better. Uh, if, um, as J uh, Dean Smith mentioned, the uh, broken bone occurred um, in blatant violation of the rules of the game or in some circumstance that was away from the play, et cetera. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, we'll have to return and, uh, <laughs> to this topic because it is. We could spend a few hours, and it's, it really is fascinating, and I suspect we will see it a lot in the sports pages in the days ahead. I think so. Thank you.
Today on Law Review, we are talking with Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Bedell, and Deputy District Attorney Wendy Patrick. Judge Bedell, just before every election, I get calls from my friends asking, how do I decide who to vote for for judge? So, so what should I tell them? Uh, if, you're not on, if you're on the ballot, I know what to tell them, but if, if you're not on the ballot, what do I tell them? Vote for Judge Bedell is the very first thing you tell them. Um, ironically, I am up for election this year, but no one ran against me, so I am uh, very uh, ready to go. I, I will be uh, reelected without opposition. That's a very difficult question for a layperson, especially one who's separated from uh, any legal resources. Um, and so um, I actually get that question all the time from people, which I think is a fair question from neighbors, other people saying, Judge, you know, what do you think of this particular candidate? Who should I vote for in a race? And I think it's fair for uh, any lawyer, and I think it's fair for any judge in a private situation to answer that question. So that's one major resource. If you know your local lawyer, if you've had a lawyer that's handled a case for you, if uh, there's a neighbor down the street who's a judge or lawyer, go knock on their door and say, you know, I really want to be conscientious about this. Do you know um, who I should, uh, wh what the relative qualifications are of these candidates? Um, I will say this. Um, we have not completely Los Angelized yet. My <laughs> apologies to our Los Angeles uh, listeners here. But uh, we are still, despite our numbers uh, of population, a small Andy of Mayberry community. Everyone knows each other in San Diego. Everyone behaves in a collegial, friendly, small town way. So if that neighbor down the street, the lawyer that you know, doesn't know the two candidates or three candidates, he certainly in the next morning can get on the phone and find someone who does and report back to you. So that's one resource. So let me ask about uh, the, the bar associations. Uh, ratings in almost all states where there are elections of judges, the, the local bar association, or in some cases the state bar association, will ask attorneys and then report what the attorneys say. Is, are those mostly reliable? I think, uh, I can only speak for San Diego, and I, I can say that in San Diego County, the bar association, and in particular the leadership of the bar, is so diverse, so well chosen for its diversity, so representing a cross-section of different opinions and ideas that w whatever they investigate ends up being a very objective and accurate means of determining a judicial candidate. They take a lot of time to canvass all the lawyers in the community to determine what people know about the candidates. And at the end of that long investigation, they come out with whether or not the candidate is not qualified, the candidate is qualified, or well qualified. I think it's an excellent resource, something to uh, hang your head on, so to speak. I, I guess I have lived in four states while I've been a voting age and been able to vote, and that was uniformly the case. I mean, in part because it's taking your first principle, ask the attorney you know, and expanding it to a large number and averaging out what they say. Exactly. Judge Medell, um, whenever I talk to uh, lay individuals or non-attorneys about potential judges or judge candidates, the big item that always comes up in the conversation is whether or not the judge is going to be too liberal or too conservative. And um, non-attorneys are concerned that judges are going, courtroom judges are going to insert their own political views into the process of being a judge. Is there any sort of process that specifically looks at the political views of the judge? Well, um, first of all, 
each person who runs for judge or is a judge or wants to be a judge has their own upbringing and own or their own political persuasions. Something has affected them just as we talk to jurors. It's the same, same sort of thing. So there's no guarantee that someone is not going to be influenced by some pre-existing thought. The thought, though, is for any judge to have a total commitment to not do that, a total commitment to approach every case on its own merit, listen to the facts, each individual facts, and make the best possible decision in accordance with the law on those facts without being influenced by some pre-existing factors. So I would say generally that's what we're looking for. Now when we're talking about appointments, that is when the governor appoints, yes, there is extremely close vetting, and I'm not going to go there until I'm asked, if I am asked, uh, but there's extremely close vetting in terms of um, positions that you've taken, etc., cetera, uh, so that the governor can screen you appropriately to make sure that you are objective and fair. In terms of elections, you can look, you can Google someone, you can find out a political persuasion, find out whether there is uh, past um, incidents where they've taken extreme positions uh, in open and public forums. You can even find out if there's any criminal behavior in their past, disciplinary proceedings by the bar, or, or anything like that. Uh, the San Diego County Bar Association, uh, strike that, the um, California State Bar has a website that will actually uh, tell you whether or not a lawyer's been disciplined. So that's another excellent resource that you can get on the internet. And I would say uh, the uh, San Diego Tribune is a resource that you might tap into, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit if you want. Go ahead, Mr. Judge Medell, when I, when I do these podcasts, I usually am wearing my San Diego State business lecturer hat. And in that capacity, I often uh, well, I try not to, but occasionally I check to see what's been said about me on RateMyProfessor.com. <laughs> so my question is, um, is there, are there some reliable places that the uh, members of the public can go when they're attempting to learn more about judicial candidates? Of course, on my own time. I have attempted to find these, and I have only found, <laughs> I have only found one site that seemed to be committed to commenting on judges here in San Diego County. And all I can say is uh, that w website seemed a little bit like Comedy Central's roast, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> committed to destroying any particular judge they could find. Is it the and one I'm holding out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah, let's not even talk about it. That's why I, I don't asked really want to get too fine, too fine in my comments. <laughs> but I haven't found a reliable uh, uh, source, uh, website source that is an objective evaluator of judge. I've only found something that I believe to be a hit, a hit uh, website that was uh, designed Which wouldn't be very helpful for anybody trying to yes. decide on to how to vote. It wouldn't be helpful at all, that yeah. particular site. I will say, though, that um, the San Diego Union-Tribune does do fairly good investigation. So if you're looking for facts about a candidate in order to make your own opinion about the candidate, the Tribune is a good source. I would say, because they'll tell you whether, in general, the community feels, uh, lawyers feels that this, these candidates are qualified or well-qualified. However, when you look at their opinions, that is, who you should vote for, I just have to wonder what happens. Their uh, last uh, election, they rated a certain candidate uh, well-qualified for months and months and months. Uh, the other candidate was uh, just qualified. They endorsed the well-qualified candidate for a long time, and then literally on the eve of the election, they switched without any explanation. And so, yeah, I am not commenting on the Union Tribune. All I can say is that's never been explained to me, and it made me sort of wonder what happened to, to cause them to change. 
at that point. So I, what I'm saying is if you rely on the substantive inf information that the Union Tribune objectively reports to make your own opinion and be a little bit more cautious in terms of following their opinions on who should be the judge, I think you'll be in good shape. You know, this, this last part of this conversation asked me, should we be electing judges? Of course, in the federal system, I have my constitution right here, and <laughs> Article 3, Section 1, it says that federal judges are appointed for life or for good behavior is what it says. Should, should states do the same thing? Some do, but most, most don't, most elect judges. Should we be electing judges, do you think? Well, um, there are arguments for and against that. <laughs> and I hate to be wishy-washy here, and especially being a sitting judge, you know, my position should be never. <laughs> Elections are completely unnecessary because we're so good as we are. But the good part is that it, you know, I suppose one advocate for elections, it would be a check on a judge. And uh, if that particular judge is, um, is um, um, not performing his duties as a, a judge should, uh, perhaps he should have that election in mind. Um, the other side of the coin, however, is, and this is really becoming a problem, is that judicial posts are now being target are becoming targets for uh, uh, political causes. Uh, for example, uh, state of California votes in a certain measure that has to do with a certain subject matter, and a judge is then called upon uh, to uh, rule on the constitutionality of that measure. And when the judge does, and it happens to be against what the people had voted for, suddenly the judge is now uh, legislating from the bench. Even though he's in good faith doing exactly what the lawyers asked him to do, is to compare the statute with what's required for our, from our California and our United States Constitution. And I think, uh, not so much in the state of California, but in other states, particularly in the state of Florida, there are huge public outcries against judges calls for their removal, et cetera. And what an election does and what those causes do with in, in combination with an election uh, is to chill a judge from exercising his own independent and good faith determination on an issue because he's so concerned about A, the consequences of an election, and B, an outcry from some group somewhere that will be printed in the paper. And I do believe that um, uh, in that regard, Judges should be left alone to do their work. After the election, we'll have to take up this topic again because I, I'm from Iowa, and this has been exactly what you said. There was one case for two elections now, a, an effort to remove people from the Iowa Supreme Court, justices from the Iowa Supreme Court, because of a single issue on which people disagreed. And, and it does have uh, raise important questions. We'll return to those. But in the meantime, we are out of time. I really want to thank our guests on Law Review today, John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, Wendy Patrick. Thank you for being on Law Review. Thank, thank you, you, Dean Smith, for inviting us. Thank you. They all, of course, are speaking as individual educators, not as representatives of their officers. We also thank our producers, Hank Crook, Grace Garner, and Ben Pesner. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast and to leave messages for us by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith. Law Review stands adjourned.